1: Thing you need to fight the Trump administration this is the bill press show live at youtube.com slash the bill press show
2: good morning and welcome to the bill press show I'm Sabrina Siddiqui political reporter at the Guardian filling in for Bill on this Friday morning the president calling for unity in the face of attempted attacks on several uh, former and current Democratic lawmakers and officials as well as others with who have uh, picked a fight in some ways with him, or maybe who he's picked a fight with. But the White House is blaming the media. Pretty predictable, something that we'll break down with our great team here. That includes Peter Ogburn. Good morning, Peter. Hi, Sabrina. How you doing?
1: I'm proud to be part of the great team that you're working with this morning.
2: It is indeed a great team. Ray Rogers, of course, and uh, Cyprian Bolding, making us all look good. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There it is. It's back. It's back. <laughs> um, I didn't specifically tell him he should bring it back, but he, did, a, he, he, did, he, did, he did it on today. his own. to <laughs>
1: feel a little punchy today. I can tell.
2: Uh, so, a lot to break down. Uh, but first,
1: this is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news. So, the Villanova men's basketball team won the national championship earlier this year. Uh, or I guess last year. Uh, it turns out they said they are not going to go to the White House, even though they are celebrating their second national title in the past three years. They announced, no, we have no intention to go to Donald Trump's White House. They will be here, of course, when they play Georgetown uh, in, in the next couple of months. But uh,
2: no. no. It's a here. recurring theme, skipping S- out on the White House uh Especially ceremony. basketball players. Especially basketball, and frankly, a lot of uh, players—you know, NFL, MLB—they've been conspicuous in their absence, even when the teams have gone.
1: Yeah, like so. So, college football teams, the NFL teams have gone. A lot of players did not go uh, when that happened, but um, I, I, I don't think a basketball team has gone yet. I mean, the right. women's uh, NCAA champions weren't even invited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But the Donald ma- Trump's
2: like, women, do they even yeah. play sports?
1: Women can't play sports. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, the Villanova is just the latest to, uh, to to not go to the White House. Sabrina, what do you know about the McRib?
2: The McRib. The
1: McRib. Do you know
2: about it the McRib? It sounds like something at McDonald's. It is something okay. from
1: McDonald's. Have you, there's a cult of McRib. I haven't McRib. actually
2: heard of it, but McRib. You've what?
1: never heard of the McRib? No. Okay, well, here's the thing. There is a cult of McRib. People are... Very, very into the McRib. because it used to be a menu item that you could get when you were like when I was a kid and ah. they took it off. So you've aged yourself. I've aged myself. It's a boneless pork sandwich smothered in mcdonald's barbecue sauce with pickles and onions on like just a hoagie doesn't style doesn't sound good at all it's disgusting <laughs> it's disgusting and i get one per year because <laughs> it tastes like my childhood well it's back baby they bring it back once a year around this time it's here it yesterday was the first day uh that you could get it so if you are a mcrib fan You could go get one at McDonald's. Shouldn't they be
2: bringing like a turkey-themed, like a Thanksgiving-themed item? Not that we're encouraging McDonald's to introduce more to their menu. I'm not going to
1: give McDonald's any more ideas of (laughs) what to do with their menu because I don't eat at McDonald's except for once a year when I get a McRib. Uh, (laughs) By the way, here's something that you should not do. There was a Frontier Airlines flight that left Cancun for St. Louis when a passenger was not feeling well. Says he was feeling sick, he became very agitated, and then he opened the cabin door in flight. What? It deployed the emergency slide while they were in air. Not good.
2: Not good. Don't do that. And wait, he actually opened the door of the plane
1: open oh, yeah open the cabin door in flight and deploy the emergency that slide that just
2: sounds terrifying it's
1: not something that you should uh, that you should do yeah. and by the way Please it, don't. we talked about this a little bit yesterday but it looks like it's official megan kelly is out at nbc oh. uh apparently it's a bad idea to defend blackface uh when you are a white person on tv she's going to be paid out her full contract though 69 million dollars this is the bill press show
2: sabrina Sidiki here on this friday morning filling in for bill uh so many uh headlines as usual to uh, run through and that includes of course the way in which the president is responding to uh suspicious packages that were sent to former president barack obama former and former first lady michelle obama former secretary of state hillary clinton and former President Bill Clinton, former Vice President Joe Biden, George Soros, of course, liberal donor and philanthropist uh, Maxine Waters, uh, even Robert De Niro, apparently. Uh, This is, of course, a list of people who have either been frequent targets of the president and his supporters in terms of conspiracy theories that are perpetuated on the right, uh, or they are people who have publicly feuded uh, with the president and been willing to criticize him, something that it's frankly a constitutional right to free speech. But uh, allegedly, we what we know is that there were uh, pipe bombs that were or explosive devices that were sent to these individuals uh, that could very well have gone off had they not been intercepted either by Secret Service or um, flagged for screening. And um, the president, of course, he uh, spoke briefly on uh, the day that this first began uh, Wednesday, about 48 hours ago, a little bit uh, less than that, and condemned uh, acts of violence. But, of course, he can't help himself. And so he, at a rally, blamed the media for creating this environment. Yesterday, in a tweet, he continued to say that the media has to accept responsibility, that the fake news is uh, what's led to a lot of the anger. And uh, Sarah... Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, doubled down on that defense. in one of the rare moments that she's faced reporters in recent memory, here's uh, what she had to say.
4: The idea that this is at the hands of the president is absolutely ridiculous.
2: And then, you know, she went on to say that the media has been negative. uh, So really laying blame at uh, the feet of people who are just doing their jobs.
4: You guys continue to focus only on the negative, and that is there is a role to play. Yesterday, the very first thing that the president did was come out and condemn the violence. The very first thing your network did was come out and accuse the president of being responsible for it. That is not okay.
2: Now, that was uh, during an exchange with CNN. Uh, Now, it's also, of course, worth emphasizing that CNN at its uh, New York offices was also sent one of these uh, packages and had to evacuate and must have been, of course, a very harrowing situation for all of those who work there. Um, Of course, CNN is also one of the most persistent targets of the president's criticism. Uh, He shouted down their reporters. He constantly refers to the network as fake news. And frankly, you know, here's the thing. I think that anyone might agree that the president's supporters you know if they don't like the news they have every right to criticize fine I mean you know they can say that they believe the coverage is unfair Uh, that's their right but there is a difference between saying that you don't particularly agree with the story and doing what the president has done which is calling the media the enemy of the American people praising a congressman who Body slammed my colleague Ben Jacobs. That was just a week ago. Yeah. Um, and routinely going beyond just saying that, you know, the media has an agenda or, you know, I they're they're out to get us, but actually on multiple occasions engaging in what is openly hostile rhetoric against the freedom of the press. And frankly, that's the same that could the same could be said for the ways in which he's attacked his political opponents, the lock her-up chance against Hillary Clinton. Obama is the founder of ISIS is something he once said. Constantly questioning <laughs> about that. his yeah. patriotism. It's it it just is breaking with any norms. Of, you know, even in the rough and tumble of politics. And so, frankly, I don't think that it's unreasonable to then now in this moment question if the president's rhetoric has enabled. Someone to, or more than one person, we don't yet know, to take this step of going after those very people.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, Sarah Sanders' clip that we just played, I think sums up the entire problem that Donald Trump has. She's complaining that so much of the coverage has been negative. And it's not that the coverage has been like. I wouldn't say that the media is going out of their way to be negative about mm. Donald Trump. It just so happens that there are a lot of negative stories that come out about Donald Trump. And it, it, what's really interesting to me is there are a lot of reporters that I saw, you know, tweeting different stories about their interactions with government officials over the years, and like most government officials sort of understand and realize and recognize that a free press is vital to the process here, right? Like I remember uh, yesterday somebody was tweeting about who wrote and was very critical of the war uh, when they finally met George Bush, who referenced and acknowledged that this person had been writing very critical things about the war. George Bush said, you know, keep it up. George Bush is a war criminal, and I'm not trying to give him too much credit here, but there's an understanding that right. like, sometimes you're not going to do the right thing, and the media is there to talk about it, right. right? And so this idea that the media isn't fawning over Trump and giving him praise constantly the way that Sarah Huckabee Sanders and all of his cabinet officials do, that that's somehow negative coverage and that they're being very mean and unfair to me.
2: And also... He's the one who drives the news cycle. He thrives in doing so. He wants the media to talk about all of these distractions, all of these shiny objects. So frankly, when it's a president who in a tweet is attacking women with derogatory terms, who is giving rise to conspiracy theories around illegal immigration and millions of fraudulent votes in the election, Uh, making unsubstantiated claims about how he was wiretapped by his predecessor, obviously attacking an independent investigation into foreign influence in the 2016 campaign. It's not that the media is just creating stories out of thin air. They're pretty much covering what comes out of the White House. And, you know, I, I think that the other distinction here is that, There are very rarely occasions where media gets it wrong. In any profession, people make mistakes, right? There are going to be moments where maybe there is an error in a story and it's consequential or it has certainly um, caused people to – or it's been misleading. Look, It's not not, not that it happens particularly often. No,
1: the the story that I think of the most when you mention that, right, mm -hmm. uh, was day one, uh, Zeke Miller – Because I'm only mentioning this because the Trump administration will not give this up. Right. He made a mistake. He made a mistake because he wrote that the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. had been taken out of the Oval Office mm -hmm. on Trump's first day in the White House. He immediately corrected that and said, I was wrong. I didn't see it. But now I see it It just it was a mistake. Uh, And it was. You know he owned up to it he apologized he did the apology tour for days on end and the trump white house still holds on to this as if that was some sort nearly of nearly two years plan. later two years later
2: and frankly in the aftermath of that the president called him out by name yeah singled out a reporter knowing full well that you know there he has a very angry mob of supporters yeah and that could frankly put that particular journalist under threat when he had already apologized now you know, that was what I was actually going to get to, though, is the distinction between the media and the White House is that the, the rear, on the rare occasions that the media gets it wrong, the people have a, who are responsible for getting it wrong have apologized. Yeah. The news organizations have issued corrections. They've issued retractions. People, are losing people their have, jobs. Been, have been fired. Yeah. There were people at CNN who were fired uh, in the summer of last year Over, you know, a particular story where they had gotten something wrong and I I don't recall the particulars, but there were were editors and reporters who were let go because that's the standards that these institutions hold themselves to. And they recognize the gravity of the words that they print or that they say on air. But what we haven't seen is the same behavior from the White House where any given day the president is saying something from his podium, from his platform that is... B- blatantly false yeah and so are the people in his administration and never once have they apologized never once have they acknowledged that they got something wrong uh people certainly don't lose their jobs over having said anything that was false Think in of fact promotions. they get or or you <laughs> know they find a convenient opportunity to um to, to dispose of them, but it has nothing to do with the fact that they committed any wrongdoing in terms of what they've said to the public. It's usually because maybe they weren't loyal enough to the president. I, frankly, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, misled the vice president and frankly was not let go you know, despite what they said in public for doing so. He was actually kept on for weeks after that. It was only when the media became aware of the fact that Mike Flynn had misled the president. That, that after it was publicly reported about his contacts with the Russians, uh, that's when they, at some point, realized that the situ- situation had come to a head and they had to do something about it. But, you know, what you simply don't see is, from this administration, any acknowledgement that they may ever be culpable in any wrongdoing, when, frankly, regardless of party, presidents in the past have apologized. There have been moments where they have said that they perhaps got something wrong. Um and and I, I think that a lot of what you see from the president is what he's doing right now, which is to double down and to harden the battle lines and to deflect blame and to put it back on either his political opponents or on the media. And so, you know, he's been going on and on about the idea that there is a left wing mob trying to stoke fears ahead of the midterms. And what you actually see and is frankly, so far at least, what's, what's really been crystallized in this particular moment is that the, the very tangible threat of violence has actually, at least we don't know who's responsible, but apparently come from someone who has an agenda against Democrats.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that, that appears to be the case. And, and yesterday it turns out they've sort of narrowed down their search to the Miami, Florida area. Um, they're going to find out who did this, right? Like this is, this is, I don't want to say that this is easy, but like, there are plenty of giveaways in a situation like this that can lead back to who made the bombs, who sent the bombs. So it's just a matter of time, I, I believe, uh, before we get this. But, you know, picking up on something that you just said, right? Donald Trump, uh for as... Um, uh, like lousy as his brain is on most occasions right like it just does not work very well uh what you just mentioned he's very very good at a, like a small number of things he's very good at doubling down he's very good at passing the blame onto somebody else he's very good at hardening those lines to make it a very clear fight where everything is in black and white, right? There is no gray area in the world of Donald Trump. And, you know, we're reminded of previous administrations and previous officials where, you know, if a bad story comes out or a, or a story that has bad optics comes out, it's crisis mode. They go into crisis mode. And they like, people lose their jobs. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, a derailing of agendas, you know, because of a relatively uh, comparatively small snafu you know right i mean we're th- i'm thinking about you know the very beginning of barack obama's administration with tom daschle was completely derailed uh for hhs secretary because there was like a very minor tax oversight that he fixed mm-hmm. but because it happened one time many many years ago it was disqualifying and barack obama threw him overboard for right. it and that's not going to happen here with the trump administration no. and it's not going to they're not going to take any accountability for any of this
2: and it, it's it, 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 the challenge of course is that you know this is all have happening against the backdrop of the midterms which are now less than two weeks away and uh, but but the but midterms or no midterms, I think it's fair to say the president would have likely had the same response regardless of the timing of all totally this. Totally yeah. but yeah. But, but, you know, what you've now seen is Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, really echoing the president's uh, rhetoric and their response to this by saying, you know, the media is not immune to criticism. The You know, the media has to tone it down. And and no one is arguing that the media is not immune to criticism. But again, what the president has has done in his attacks on the media extends well beyond the confines of mere criticism. Yeah, this uh, is nothing that we've ever it's, seen. It's before. hostility, and Here. it is certainly uh, taking a page from more authoritarian-leaning regimes around the world. And so... You know, I it's 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 also obviously, frankly, curious, not curious, really. I mean, it's telling and it's not entirely unpredictable given what we've seen over the last nearly two years. But, you know, it certainly is remarkable that you know, a lot of the Republicans who have spoken out about this and who have echoed the president's uh, response in, in trying to ascribe some blame to the media, you know, when a bomb is sent to CNN... Is that really the moment where you want to pick that fight? Is it really that hard to just say that attacks on the media and any attempted violence against the media is without question inexplicably out of bounds that the media plays a vital role in a functional demo- in any functional democracy that the freedom of the press no matter your disagreements must be protected. How difficult would it be to just say Those words, and so it really does tell you, I think, the response that you heard from a number of uh, Republicans. I know Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Marco Rubio. There are quite a few who who've very much echoed the Trumpian line um, in saying that the media is, you know, has has unfairly attacked the president, and so they need to also examine their own behavior. Um, You know what that really tells you is the 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 lens they have gone to to cover for this president.
1: Yeah, it's 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 sort of never ending. You know, we I want to play this clip because, you know, I love The View. Oh, yeah. Genuinely, I love it. Yeah. And Joy Behar (laughs) yesterday, who I just adore. uh, She went uh, off yesterday talking about how, yeah, Donald Trump obviously has this sort of violent uh, rhetoric but it's not just Trump. And I think that it's incumbent upon the Republicans in this country to start to speak out. Because as long as there is silence from McConnell and Ryan and, 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 uh, and uh, Barrasso and Hatch and all those guys, There will always be a reaction. They have to now speak out against this. They did not open their mouths when he attacked your father. They did not open their mouths when he attacked a Gold Star family. Or he said he was going to grab women by their genitals. Or when he said the Second Amendment will take care of Hillary Clinton. They stayed silent, and they are the perpetrators also. I, I don't... And, like, that feels like a quaint idea at this point. But it's also a very clearly defined role of what these government officials should be doing. The
2: check and balance. uh, But, you know, it's also, frankly, I'm still very amused that she mentioned uh, John Barrasso. Uh, who never really gets his due, <laughs> a Republican uh, from Wyoming, member of leadership in the Senate. Um, and I almost feel like Joe, Joy Behar was like, who else can I name right now? Me, <laughs> right. throw in Barrasso. And he's probably like, I'm actually one of the few people who literally never gets mentioned. Yeah. So thank you very much. But no, like jokes aside, I, I do think that we've just come to expect that Republicans are going to be either muted in their criticism or they're just going to refrain from you know having to... Comment on a particular issue, but this is something that authorities have declared is an attempted act of political terrorism. Look, they, they, they've used, they've gone ahead now and yeah. and used the words political terrorism. it is, and because it is, it's, it, it is obviously. Is. And so you you know the fact that you can't even in this moment just find the words to say to say so and to be very explicit about it. I, I mean, it's it's again, it's not unpredictable, um, but at the same time, somehow we're surprised. But
1: well, do you know what I think? I, I think what it is that's surprising is we've seen this building now for almost two years, and you've seen the cover that Republicans have given Donald Trump all th- this whole time, and I think it really hit fever pitch uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, where you saw. Uh, U.S. Senators mocking sexual abuse Mm. uh, survivors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, All to just get to their goal, right? Right. It was no longer necessarily about defending (laughs) Donald Trump. It was more about uh, just doing what they could to get their guy on the court. And so that really was a low point. Right. And I don't know that we are going to get out of that low point. We're still in it.
2: No, I I frankly don't. I mean, there, there, there clearly is not um, you know, a way out, so to speak, and and that this is this is fairly now transparent in terms of what it looks like. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of this will be determined by the outcome of the midterms and uh, which party has control of Congress uh, well, that, that, in that, January. That's
1: the other part of this. The reason they're doing this because they can get away with it. So if they lose their jobs and they can't get away with it anymore, then what?
2: Right. Well, that would be the question. I mean, the moment that the president actually becomes a very clear political liability, that's the moment that they would jump ship. And right now, all that they know is that the overwhelming majority of Republicans are behind this president. It's anywhere from 80 to 90 percent. Usually it's in the mid to high 80s. And so their primary thought process is how do we retain the support of the president's base and I, the Brett Kavanaugh moment is very telling because that showed you that it wasn't just the most ardent supporters of the president. Actually, it is even what you would once have referred to as mainstream Republicans who are 110 percent behind the president and his agenda, or at very, at the very least, who it, who are part of this period of intense tribalism, and they're much more motivated by that tribalism than they are any ideology uh, or anything else. Uh, but we'll have so much more time to to. Talk about these issues as we uh, obviously have our great lineup of guests. I I did want to talk about Megyn Kelly, who, as you said, is apparently out at NBC. Uh, That's what has been reported, and uh, the network is having to uh, pay out her very hefty sixty-nine million dollar contract. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's probably there would be there will be a protracted legal battle of sorts. I'm sure. Uh, that they were just in the uh, in at uh, the early stages of this, but here's the thing: so Megyn Kelly, well, you as many of you are aware, um, defended blackface. That's how this all began. I can't believe we just had to say that. <laughs> right? She, she, she was talking blackface. about Halloween costumes. Yeah. Uh, with an all-white panel. Now, to be fair to. You know, the producers, or to the, to, frankly, to the panel, perhaps it wasn't actually known that she was going to go in this direction. I don't know if they were just talking about Halloween and she was I'd like, like you know hope what? This wasn't a <laughs> plan. Yeah. Well, we don't really know. I mean, was right. she, go- you know, maybe her producers didn't know that she was going to ask the panel about blackface, but it, 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 you know, the question she raised uh was whether or not it was actually offensive and maybe some people are just trying to emulate their role models and she mentioned you know that it used to be okay when she was growing up and and you know if someone wanted to be diana ross they were just showing their appreciation and uh and she and, and one of the most jarring moments of this conversation where her panelists were just kind of awkwardly nodding and not knowing what to say was um what is racism that was the oh verbatim boy. quote, what is racism? Which I think is a pretty clear. First of all, the history of blackface is very clear and it is racist, um, but- Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> and potentially, yeah, we are is in it, these times where you have to actually say it. You took a bold stand there. Uh, but, but, you know, <laughs> even to add, you know, if you have to insert the question, what is racism while having a conversation, you're probably talking about racism. Well, probably, if you have to
1: insert the question: What is racism? If you're when you're talking about whether or not it's okay to wear blackface, it's, it, it, you're not doing a great job.
2: Frankly, if you have to day. ever ask what is racism. I think that's very telling about sure. um, your own, you know, way of thinking. That you know, I think pretty, people pretty much know what is and isn't racism. What is and isn't racist. They, they just don't want to often say it out loud. That's all. Uh, but I, I, I think the reason I only really brought it up is because you know. Clearly, NBC is using this opportunity to get rid of uh, Megyn Kelly, whose show, Megyn Kelly Today, and her participation in the Today Show, uh, was never really working from the get-go. Well, like, look, I, I don't I, I don't want to... But they knew what they... I was going to say, they knew what they were getting. <laughs>
1: yeah, they knew what they were getting. They, I mean, it's not that they wanna... didn't watch I, her at Fox News. I, I certainly don't want to give Megyn Kelly any sympathy at all, right? But, like... This is a comment, this blackface comment, the conversation that she had, that would have been fine at Fox News. They would have let, like, she would not have lost her job. Frankly, she's
2: probably said it. (laughs) Well, she had her whole rant about Black Santa.
1: And Jesus
2: was she, white. Yeah, and Jesus was white. That's had right. A...
1: So, like, sh- this is not new territory for her. It, it's... And she
2: did just fine at Fox
1: News. Like they, 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 <sighs> they soaked it up.
2: Zero. So, so uh, problems, I, I would right. recommend that people read a, a an op-ed in USA Today that was penned by Kirsten Powers because she very much goes through the long history of Meghan Kelly saying things that are explicitly racist or race racially charged Uh, you know i don't like to use the latter term but fine if people sometimes think that there is some sort of uh gray area uh, you know but most of what she has said is just plain racist and a lot of it has to do with police brutality um you know she often had what was the name of the racist cop in the oj simpson trial Um, the nazi cop mike Furman. Mark Furman. Mark, Mark Furman. Furman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark yeah. Furman. Yeah. Yeah. She had him on to constantly comment on police brutality, as if, <laughs> as if he would have any sort of independence on this issue. Uh, you know, there was that infamous video of the young uh, a, a black woman teenager, I believe, who was wearing a bathing suit and pinned down forcibly yeah. by a cop. And she, I remember Megan Kelly said that that girl was no saint. Um, you know, she her her. There was once a. a Uh, Chiron or some sort of uh, during her show referring to Michelle Obama as Obama's baby mama. I mean, there's just so so much, frankly. And so just read the op-ed because that very much breaks down the fact that NBC knew what they were buying. It's apparently cost them $69 million. Think about this for a
1: second. Think about the money that they had to pay Matt Lauer when they got rid of him. And think about the money that they've had to pay Megyn Kelly to get rid of her. I mean, we're talking like over a hundred million dollars.
2: Yeah, you know who didn't get such uh, in like
1: a year's time.
2: Y- yeah, the people who didn't get—I um, mean, they, it's not that they got nothing, but the people who certainly didn't get comparable buyouts were uh, Tamron Hall and uh, Ann Curry. Uh, you know, yeah. I, obviously, you know, the network has come under criticism for its uh, yeah. lack of diversity, but also the way that it has treated its anchors or Correspondents of Color. Uh, we will have a lot more, of course, to talk about. So stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and be back with our some of our great guests. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show.
1: Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show.
2: Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning, Friday and joining us in studio now is Melanie Zenona, staff writer at The Hill, who you could also follow on Twitter at mzenona, doing a lot of great work covering everything from midterms to uh, the way that actually the the re- reaction is playing out to the pipe bombs that we've been talking about. This morning, that were sent to uh, more uh, nearly a dozen, if not more, current and former elected officials, all of whom are Democrats. Those who served in the Obama administration, even actor Robert De Niro, who uh, infamously <laughs> engaged in a pretty high-profile fo- feud <laughs> with uh, the president. Yes. And uh, so, you know, we're we're less than two weeks out from midterms, and so, you know, it's it's not unexpected that like anything, um, people would perhaps be a little bit partisan or polarized in their response uh, to this moment. But having said that, this is something that authorities are calling an act of political terrorism. Um, But what is what is the reaction that you're seeing from lawmakers, especially Republicans, just because this this is something that has Democratic officials who have been targeted?
0: Well, it's actually incredible. Less than 24 hours after these first pipe bomb were mailed out and we heard about them, Both parties were back in their partisan corners, pointing their fingers at one another with Democrats blaming the president and his fiery rhetoric for turning things up and, you know, inspiring this sort of violence. And then on the other side, Republicans were saying this is actually the media's fault for constantly covering all these negative stories. The president again tweeted this morning why Do I when I do something, I get called not presidential. Maybe it's because he's the president. I don't know. (laughs) But um, it's just it's just really interesting that this is all playing out with the backdrop of the midterm elections in two weeks. Things are so heated and Democrats are really using this as an opportunity to attack the president. It's a new opening for them. And that, of course, always risks firing up the president's supporters and his base. And we have seen conservatives come out and suggest that perhaps the bombs were fake and were a hoax. Um, and this is just the new normal for our politics. You know? Right. There's
2: there's a lot of prominent uh, media personalities. I right, have suggested that this is a hoax. Um, you know, we haven't really, to my knowledge, maybe you've seen otherwise seen Republicans in Congress suggest it's a hoax. But I have seen a, a, f- a few of them suggest that the media does need to examine its behavior. In it. But these are the same people who oftentimes distance themselves from the president's rhetoric uh, because they they do believe he's gone too far so do you think it's it really is just because do you think it's just because of the moment where they don't want to do anything that might threaten turnout among supporters
0: yeah absolutely this is all about the base in the midterms they're trying to drum up that gop base they know that that is what's going to save them if anything in the midterm elections i think probably these independent moderate voters these suburban female women may already be gone, they may know that, and so they are making a play for their supporters who came out in 2016, propelled Trump to victory, and they're hoping they're going to have repeat in 2018.
2: You know, another is, and and because you know, George Soros, a uh, billionaire, philanthropist, you know, liberal donor, um, he's someone who was targeted in in these attempted attacks. And as you talk about hoaxes, um, one of the conspiracy theories that was perpetuating uh, on the right was that George Soros was funding this caravan of migrants who were uh, en route uh, thousands of miles away still, but toward the U.S.-Mexico border from Honduras. Of course, there's been a migrant crisis for years now uh, that really stems from, migra- from those who are fleeing uh, Central America, who are fleeing gang violence, poverty. Um, from mostly El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. And so um, you know, that was one of the, the, the theories that was out there that Democrats orchestrated this. But how is it, unsubstantiated, I, I have to obviously reiterate, yeah. you know, how that's for what the White House has wished to talk about and the president continues to tweet about even over the last couple of days. Um what are the politics of the of this of the caravan? I, you know, and is it something that Democrats are actually talking about, trying to refute, or are they sidestepping the issue entirely.
0: Well, I talked to a bunch of GOP strategists about that issue this week, and they say it's a complete reversal from the summer when Republicans were on defense when it comes to immigration after the family separation issue. It looked really bad for them. But they say the caravan looks really bad for Democrats because Trump has really been able to seize on this. He's using it to stoke fears about national security, saying criminals and gang members and drugs are going to flow into the country. Even though this caravan is still miles away, they're not guaranteed entry either. They're seeking asylum. That doesn't matter. The politics of fear is very strong. It's a stronger motivating factor in the midterms. And on top of that, the economy and the jobs and taxes that Paul Ryan urged members to run on was not working on the campaign trail. So they made this very clear shift. They saw the caravan, were able to seize on that. And it does appear that the enthusiasm is really high. Trump's approval ratings are up record levels in some of these polls, including an NBC one that was just conducted last weekend. So it could be a smart strategy for the Republicans Mm -hmm. to really use this to their advantage. In
2: fact, I I recall that it was in 2014 that there was a surge of unaccompanied minors at the U.S. border, and President Obama had to deal with that while in office, and it was a midterm election year. And frankly, it was the same strategy that Republicans used in that time to try and sound the alarm over uh, illegal immigration, even though, as you rightly pointed out, this is not necessarily illegal immigration. These are people who are coming to seek asylum. And under international law, they have a right to do so. Um, but but it did work to the benefit of Republicans. Uh, Democrats, I feel though they're not really talking about it, are they? I and mean, what are Democrats talking about? And is it that they don't want to take the bait or they actually recognize that this is something I, that might I be think dicey?
0: There's a few things at play. Number one, there was a New York Times report that a internal memo was released to Democrats urging them not to talk about immigration if they don't have to. They mm-hmm. say it's just really hard to explain to voters and that, it, you know, it is an issue where the majority, especially of Republicans and even some of these independent moderate voters, don't think that you know, people should be able to come into the country illegally. Um, again, it's hard to explain to some voters, hey, they're seeking asylum or, you know, in the case of DACA, what, you know, with the issues, it's just it's it's hard to explain why DACA kids should be allowed Uh, So they were urged to avoid it. And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of these races. Instead, they are talking about health care. That's something that we haven't seen Democrats talk about a lot. And now they are on offense and really drawing attention to the GOP health care bill that would have uh, stripped conditions protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And that has become a really potent political issue for Democrats. Republicans have been really backed into a corner and are really scrambling to defend themselves there.
2: Right. It was interesting because I feel like health care has not gotten a lot of play up until now. And uh, you're seeing, of course, a number of Republicans say that they support protecting pre-existing conditions. But then obviously, as you note, the Republican health uh, care bill that would have repealed Obamacare um, also, a lawsuit uh, yeah, they, they, brought by the Texas AG trying right. to dismantle the law. And right, protections. it would have exa- exactly it would have stripped, as you said, protections for pre existing conditions. So, is that do you, is is it the sense that voters are still primarily motivated by issues like healthcare, jobs, the economy, or is it immigration that seems to be a priority as we head uh, into well into November and frankly, are, well, we are in November, less than two weeks out. We're I not think- in November. <laughs> I, know, I lose track of time in the era in in the current uh, climate, especially in As we, as season, we yes. head into November, as we head into <laughs> November, um,
0: so look, I think with uh with Democrats, they've been advised to talk about kitchen table issues like health care. On the Republican side, you're seeing a much more national focus. So we're it's really two tracks. You know, it's mm. the local issues that people care about, such as health care matters in community, and then the national issues such as immigration and border security. Mm. Um, I think for Democrats. You know this that strategy could pay off because this is what people care about it affects them day to day not so much immigration people might be you know the politics of fear might be strong but at the same token you know healthcare is something that really matters and it impacts people every day and that's why democrats are focusing focusing on it so hard whatever happened to the
2: tax cuts you mentioned though you mentioned <laughs> um you know that they that paul ryan uh you know republicans they found that perhaps it wasn't as motivating as they had thought uh, but it seems like it's it's almost been absent from the conversation. And so, what 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 has really led into the fact that this what is the president's frankly singular major legislative accomplishment is is missing from the conversation?
0: Well, the polling shows that it's just not popular. People overwhelmingly think that it benefited the wealthy over the middle class. And I think the fact that President recently floated a 10 percent tax cut for the middle class, which Republicans were completely unaware of was even happening. And now they are reverse engineering that legislation. uh, I think that just speaks to the fact that they knew it was unpopular. It wasn't working and they needed to shift gears.
1: Think about how popular this was among Republicans at the time, like Republican strategists and a lot of consultants and insiders. They thought this was their ticket because it's undeniably true that Donald Trump did has not been has not had a lot of great legislative wins, uh, like it or not. That's just the case, right? And this is one that you could point to is a legislative win for Donald Trump. And they thought this was going to
0: be the thing. They thought this was going to be the core the of their thing. campaign pla- the, platform. Yeah, this, this was
2: supposed to be, I, you know, the the major, uh, you know, big ticket item to run on, but. It's, it's. I think it, I saw that it was even an RNC, uh, you know, internally commissioned survey by, by the Republican National Committee uh, that saw that by two to one margin. Right. The exactly. respondents felt that it, it, it disproportionately benefited the wealthy and not the middle class. So so clearly this it's even Republican voters who don't believe that the tax plan was actually beneficial to them.
0: Exactly right. And I think that's why you saw Republicans shift course very quickly after that. So you know you have a very interesting story that I also want
2: to talk about, which is um, you know it has to do with the fact that of course Nancy Pelosi she she is still suggesting um, that she will be speaker if uh, or will be, may, make a run for speaker if Democrats were to uh, take back control of the House, but she is. Um, suggesting that it would be maybe transitional it wouldn't be mm-hmm. for the long term so yes. tell us a little bit more about what first of all what has nancy pelosi said to her caucus and and how are they responding because you know th- we have this conversation frankly every two years when the new congress takes a uh, shape and and uh, but about will or will will pelosi survive or will right. she not she always does by a comfortable margin but there's been this chorus of people who are saying yeah. it's time for new leadership
0: And I think she's facing her greatest threat yet that we've seen, and this is why we've seen her take on this new strategy, which is telling the caucus, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. I have things to do, places to be. She's suggesting maybe it would only be a one-term speakership, two-term speakership. She wouldn't put a date on it. Uh, said she didn't want to make herself a lame duck, but at the same time making it known that she wants to be the transition to the next generation. And I think this is something that could maybe ease some concerns. A lot of the younger rank and file members who've been frustrated about the lack of vision for a new generation to come up through the ranks at the same time. Um, I'm hearing from other lawmakers who say it's a little bit too late for them. They want new leadership in January. They say if they get the majority back and they put Pelosi in charge, they could potentially lose whatever majority they do get in the next election. Mm. Um, So look, I think it comes down to a numbers game, whether or not she's going to actually be the Speaker of the House. If they have a very comfortable, big margin, it doesn't matter if they have 12 people going on the House floor voting against her. But if they have a very small majority, they certainly will have the numbers to block her. And some of the lawmakers I talked to predict that there's around 10 or 12 incumbents who are vowing to vote against her, um, which could be significant if you consider some of the new candidates who are coming in who could be sent to Washington who have also vowed to vote against her. Mm. Um, You know, if she makes the deal with these lawmakers, maybe loosens her grip on power, puts some younger, more progressives, at least give them a a seat at the leadership table, I think she can pull it off.
2: So who are some of those who are eyeing the uh, speakership? I, I know Tim Ryan uh, was a, a congressman from Ohio. Um, he was one of those who mounted a an unsuccessful run. Um, this was, of course, in January of 2017, right after uh, the presidential race and Trump's stunning um, victory. Um, it, it, you know, Is it him? Are there others? Are there people who who have openly said, I want to make a run? I want
0: to challenge Pelosi? Well, this is another reason why people think Pelosi is going to hang on. There is no challenger right now. No one has said they're going to run against her. There isn't a clear rival who could do it, who could beat her. Uh, so that's another reason why it's they're missing a key ingredient, which is a, a serious rival challenge to Pelosi. And there just really isn't one right now. Mm. Uh, I've talked to some lawmakers who, lawmakers who say, look, if she ends up failing, people will step up to the plate. It'll be a different ballgame in that case. But as of right now, we just don't see who that could be. Is it a
2: potent argument? I, you know, Republicans have ran all, a great deal of uh, advertising linking Democrats to Pelosi. Uh, I mean, they sort of run against Nancy Pelosi in the way that they run against Hillary Clinton. And uh, it's obviously a strategy uh, that's sort of intended to try and make this more of a national referendum on Democratic leadership in the House. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi has been in the minority for 10 years now. So um, I mean, more than actually. So I'm curious as to Does it work? Is Is she actually... You know, as toxic as characterized by her political opponents.
0: Well, number one, I think it does depend on the race. Someone like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, who was able to, you know, win his special election in a red district. He opposed her, I think, in that district. Yeah, maybe Pelosi is toxic, but in other areas, not so much. That's why you've also seen Republicans not just make Pelosi the boogeyman in recent weeks. They've also talked about Maxine Waters, Mm. Elizabeth Warren, a lot of the female Democratic candidates. Uh, Bernie Sanders, trend. yeah, uh, but not just that Jerry, uh, Jerry Nadler, someone who mm. would take over one of the committees if Democrats were in charge. So you have seen the shift in strategy. It's not just Pelosi, because that doesn't always work. Mm.
2: Maxine Waters and Elizabeth Warren are interesting because those are people who the president has routinely targeted. Uh, Maxine Waters was mm-hmm. also on the receiving end of uh, one of the uh, what the alleged pipe bombs. Uh, So it does seem like there's quite a bit of uh, rhetoric that's being echoed or tone that's being set from the top.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of these Republican candidates are taking a cue from the president, whether it's in their rhetoric and who they're going after or talking about immigration in the caravan. I think just last week, Trump tweeted that Republican candidates have to make the border part of the midterms. And that same day, I looked on Twitter and a number of Republicans started tweeting about the caravan Mm. and the midterms. So there's no coincidence there. Yeah, it's it's striking because I
2: do think that um, you know where whereas it was it was once a saying all politics is local, it seems like it is very much uh, you know a national narrative that has taken shape, and you know there's a lot of predictions then that that kind of come out in terms of whether or not this would be this is going to be a referendum on the Trump presidency, whether it's going to be about something else. Is there any sense? I mean, because there's a lot of also confident talk about a blue wave. Um, uh, Is there any sense that Democrats are worried that perhaps this is not actually uh, as certain as many people have predicted it will be?
0: Yeah, I think you've seen a lot of Democrats tamp down the talk of a blue wave, especially in recent days. There is no doubt that there was a Kavanaugh enthusiasm Mm. bump on the Republican side. A couple of Senate races have, you know, thought to be in play, have gotten really pulled away or some of these tighter races have gotten less tight in recent weeks for them. So, yeah, I think Democrats are worried the blue wave is far from guaranteed. They don't want to feel complacent either. I think that's something that they think hurt their chances in 2016 when everyone just assumed that Clinton was going to win. People didn't get out and vote. And they don't want to see that again, especially in the midterms. And Democrats tend to not vote as much as Republicans in the midterm elections.
2: What has the Kavanaugh impact been? Because, you know, you, you mentioned the, the the Kavanaugh boost of enthusiasm on the Republican side. And I was wondering about this, actually, because, you know, there was a boost on both sides during the height of the confirmation battle and just how, of course, ugly it all got in amid the allegations of sexual misconduct. And um, I wondered if perhaps the enthusiasm on the Republican side might be neutralized because he was confirmed. And so in some ways, it wasn't as motivating as perhaps if he had not been confirmed. And I was wondering if his confirmation would have then had resulted in at least Democrats being the ones to say, OK, well, we're going to re- make our voices heard at the ballot box. Is is the, But is that how the dynamic is playing out? Is there You know, what what has sort of been the impact of of it all now that we are a few weeks. Right. There was a lot of
0: concern from Republicans that the enthusiasm wouldn't last. You know, voters don't go to the polls to say thanks. So once they had him on the bench, they were really worried that they weren't going to come out. But something that Republicans did quite effectively was make the mob messaging a central part of their pitch to voters saying the Democratic, liberal, angry mob that you saw during the Kavanaugh fight are coming for this Trump agenda and this Trump presidency if you put them in charge. And again, a lot of Republicans adopting the same language as the president. And I think it's been pretty effective at keeping those enthusiasm levels really up high on the Republican side. Mm. It's
2: definitely striking to hear about the mob when we have had the events of the last 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are obviously protesters on, on the left. And but in terms of, you know, the idea of violence or an angry mob, you've had, of course, as Mm we talked about, Democratic officials be targeted. But does it do you think that the Republicans are going to tone down the talk of the mob, the left wing mob? Or is are we just conventional wisdom
0: would say, (laughs) yeah, I would think that they would want to tone that down. It completely undercuts their argument. But at the same time, we saw the president come out almost immediately after calling for unity, pointing fingers at the media, blaming them. You know, he's been on Twitter attacking the media and CNN Fake news. So I don't know if President Trump is going to tone it down because he is being told by his advisors that he should. Uh, I think he's going to say what he wants to say, and if he's saying it, I think all the Republican candidates will too. The
2: evergreen question: Will he tone it down, (laughs) or will he listen to his advisors? Uh, You're right. I think we we know the answer to that one uh, because we've been through it through it so many times. Um, But I'm I'm also curious because there's a lot of questions as to okay, who is going to actually uh, be able to boost more turnout ultimately this does come down to turnout but also questions about what does the new congress look like especially if democrats were to retake control of the house um you know there's obviously a policy agenda that can be a little bit more difficult because the president right very well may not sign a lot of it into law or he might he's very unpredictable, as we know. Uh, but like what else? Are, <laughs> investigations. I mean, what are we? What are, What would? What does the landscape really look like if Democrats yeah, were to retake? We it
0: house? is hard to imagine that any legislation would get done. There is talk about maybe a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Something Trump did shout out at his rally on Wednesday.
1: It's infrastructure week. It's always
0: infrastructure <laughs> week somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it's really hard to imagine that they would come together on a bipartisan basis if they are also simultaneously launching investigations of the White House, holding hearings, grilling administration officials, and all signs that we've seen, Democrats are very serious about investigating a lot of the administration, whether it's getting their hands on his tax returns, getting his bank records, looking at even the FBI building situation that we saw a few weeks ago, where the president intervened in canceling the sale of the FBI building, which is across the street from Towers. Democrats saying he did that so that a developer couldn't come in and build a competing hotel across the street. So there's a whole plethora of things that Democrats are promising to go after. And I think that will probably take up a lot of the oxygen on Capitol Hill.
2: And we still don't know, of course, what the outcome will be of uh, the special counsel investigation into right. Russian interference. In the right. And that's not even election. considering impeachment. Right. Right. <laughs> Which, <laughs> uh, But it seems Nancy Pelosi has often said she doesn't want to talk about the I-word, uh, impeachment. Um, now, is that just something she's saying ahead of midterms because... It could obviously still a divisive issue. Um, And there is some concern that, you know, there are some voters who would react to that and come out and support Republicans. Or do they genuinely not actually think that impeachment's on the table? I
0: actually I do think it's a combination. Number one, of course, it does not play well to call for impeachment for the midterms that would fire up the president's supporters and bring them out. But I also think Democrats are being cautious about this for two reasons. Number one, 2020 is still looming. Mm. So if they impeach the president or move to try to move to impeach the president, that's going to possibly fire up his base for 2020. Uh, And number two, they know they don't have the numbers to do it in the Senate anyway. So that, you know, this would be more of a a political show uh, that could backfire on them. So I think they are being very cautious, but, you know, they're not ruling anything out. If the Russia report from Mueller does come back with some significant evidence, I do think that there's going to be so much pressure from the left for the Democrats to act if they're in charge.
2: And Mueller has been fairly quiet, um, Mm -hmm. you know, around the midterms now as there anything to read into that? Is it sort of like a kind of, you know, stay out of the news? Yeah, I,
0: well, there is this DOJ guidance. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it is that... They shouldn't take any actions that can look like they're interfering with the midterm elections. Obviously, there's some debate whether this counted because Trump's not on the ballot. But I do think that Mueller is just keeping his head down, working behind the scenes. We are seeing some reports that he's really zeroing zeroing in on Roger Stone, an associate Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. Trump's, and his potential connections to WikiLeaks, whether he knew in advance of the hacked emails from Russia that were then released by WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he is working just because we're not necessarily hearing about it. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to see an indictment shortly after the midterms.
2: Right. And there were criminal charges against a Russian national last week. Mm-hmm. And that actually had to do it with um, inter- interference in the 2018 midterms, uh, which so it's they're certainly ongoing. So certainly uh, Russian nationals, it seems they're mm-hmm. not uh, off limits as we <laughs> go into no, the midterms, no. maybe not indicting. Uh, Former, or current Trump associates. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the guidance because uh, James Comey, obviously, so uh, so n- so infamously, uh, did choose uh, not to follow protocol with his letter. Or, right. well, Talk people- about October
0: surprises in 2016. <laughs> right. That was so. The what Comey is October
2: Institute. surprise?
0: I think it, I think the October surprise are two things. It's the caravans and it's the pipe bombs. Mm. Um, and I think each one probably plays differently for each party. And. With you know Republicans, immigration is a winning issue for them, or at least it was in 2016. So they're very excited about having this issue to run on now again in the midterms.
2: Right. It's 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 fascinating because you know, in some ways, Newt Gingrich. I think he, what did he say? The midterms are going to be about caravan. Mm-hmm. Two words:
0: caravan and Kavanaugh. Car- <laughs>
2: caravan and Kavanaugh. Obviously, we've had the events the last 40 hours maybe change that. But uh, Mel, uh sorry, but I didn't mean to call you Mel, I to <laughs> Yes. That. I was like a moment of uh, that. But thank you for being with us. Everyone, else stay tuned to this The Bill Press Show. This is The
3: Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support.
1: thing you need to fight the trump administration this is the bill press show live at youtube.com slash the bill press show
2: welcome back to the bill press show top of the hour is ria sadiki i'm a political reporter at the guardian filling in for a bill on this friday morning uh, joined also now by our guest hannah trudeau who is a staff correspondent at national journal hotline thank you so much for being thank with you. us thank you Uh, A lot to break down, and you've been on 2020 Watch, which of course is, uh, you know, already, it's already (laughs) happening. Um, And so, you know, I I really, I really wanna know who is not running. (laughs) Oh my
4: gosh, that's the crazy question of the hour. Everybody is pretty much running. Everybody that you think is gonna run will probably run.
2: Literally, I think, we'll we'll probably count through, walk through all the names, all the contenders, uh, but first, (laughs)
5: This is the Full Court Press. Yes,
1: indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. When we think about the election in 2016, we remember that one of Donald Trump's most high-profile endorsers was Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner said that she was voting for Donald Trump. Well, yesterday, she put out a statement saying she regrets that and says she was wrong because one of the things that Caitlyn Jenner talked about as a trans person was that Donald Trump was going to, uh, was was committed to LGBTQ rights. Uh, quote from Caitlyn Jenner, sadly, I was wrong. The reality is that the trans community is being relentlessly attacked by this president. Mm. This is politics at its worst. It is unacceptable. It is upsetting. It has deeply and personally hurt me. End quote. So, like, look. Good for Caitlin Jenner for coming out and saying this, but also, most people saw this coming. There's a lot of
2: I told you so's yeah, going around. Yeah, I don't uh, want to
1: rub it in and say we told you so, but like we knew this
2: was coming. This is an op-ed she published in the Washington Post. Yeah. Uh, I wonder about the timing. It's curious. That's <laughs> is for sure. It had it's midterms? curious. Uh, she didn't actually say though, that she's planning a campaign for Democrats. Maybe it's just a mea culpa. Oh, well, actually, there was apparently there was a new rule with the Trump administration, um not necessarily protecting or rescinding protections for transgender people and businesses, yeah, so that may be yeah, the right. the impetus. But yes, I think a lot of she got a lot of flack from the LGBTQ community, and I don't think that they're uh, necessarily buying the, uh, <laughs> the the remorse.
1: All right, so uh, another story: Google yesterday. This is a bad story because Google gave top executive, a top executive uh, by the name of Andy Rubin, a ninety million dollar payoff, but says that. It turns out they kept their sexu- his sexual misconduct claim quiet. Okay. There were multiple sexual conduct uh, uh, misconduct claims brought against him. But uh, Google covered it up and kept it quiet and still gave him a $90 million payoff. Now, yesterday, Google also said that they have fired 48 employees for sexual harassment over the last couple of years. Wow. They were sent away without severance packages. This story is still unfolding, but this is not a good look for Google at all. they have <laughs> nothing a major from the Me problem. Too movement.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Those could, allegations are going to come out. Yeah, yeah seriously. Uh, you're not going to be able to keep it quiet. You know, also, how do, you, how do these people get these bios? Megan Kelly was $69 $90 million, million severance 90 package. Million, what do I got to do to get a $90 million severance package?
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. Not so, that I'm going anywhere, but. Yeah, right. So. Uh, <laughs> One other story, by the way. The CDC came out because, you know, Halloween is right around the corner. Are you dressing up for Halloween, Sabrina?
2: I am. I'm going to be a panda.
1: You're going to be a panda? All right. Kinda, well, this, what do you gonna be? I
4: don't know yet. I
1: don't know yet. Peter? <laughs> the I, I'm not I'm not dressing up for Halloween. Uh, the CDC put out, the Centers for Disease Control put out a statement saying one thing that you should not do at Halloween is dress up your chickens.
2: Oh my god. This
1: is apparently a thing. People dress up their pets for Halloween, yeah. but they yeah. say that people dressing, have
2: pet chickens. People have New pet Hampshire. chickens, yeah. and <laughs> they say
1: that if you dress your chicken up for Halloween, that is one really good and effective way. To pass along salmonella. Oh boy. Yeah, really? so don't yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. I don't know. Do you do you have pet chickens? Do people like cook their pet chickens? Very... No, oh, you you, you raise chickens and you get eggs. My best uh... friend at
4: home has a pet chicken. Oh <laughs> has a okay.
1: couple. <laughs> yeah, pet chickens are okay, but like you don't you don't eat your pets, then no, you just
2: raise you them, to, them to
1: to get the weird, uh, to get the eggs.
2: <laughs> uh, you haven't been to Pakistan. <laughs>
1: This is the Bill Press Show.
2: Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Uh, Sabrina Siddiqui here filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. Uh, A lot of news, of course, uh, making the rounds. Of course, we're following the reaction and the latest from the attempted attacks on both former and current Democratic officials, those who've served in the Obama administration, others who've simply uh, picked feuds with the president, apparently the investigation is centered on um, the Miami area because that is where some of these packages were apparently uh, processed. So that's a story we'll try to bring you updates on as we continue uh, through the remainder of the hour. Uh, but joining us now is uh, Mark Morial, who is the National Urban League president and CEO. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm
5: doing great and good to be with you good this morning. Thank you. Good to
2: be with you as well. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot to break down. We're obviously less than two weeks out uh, from the November midterms. And uh, talk a little bit about what you're focused on. We've been, been on the road.
5: Uh, mm-hmm. I've been to Wisconsin. I've been to Kentucky. I'll be in uh, Louisiana and uh, out west mm. uh, in the next week. We have an active campaign called Enough is Enough Vote. Mm. Uh, we have a team that will be in Atlanta, in Georgia t- on tomorrow. Uh, Working to activate voters to get the vote out and also to educate people uh, about uh, what to do if they see voting irregularities. Mm -hmm. So we've got a strong effort. Uh, This is a critical, important, essential election. It's not time for excuses. We're encouraging people to take advantage of early voting. And we want to make sure people understand. We find uh, when we work in communities, I was in Philadelphia last week, that. Uh, Many people may want to vote, may not be quite aware, they may not be registered. Unfortunately, it's too late in a place like Pennsylvania. Or they're new to a neighborhood, they are registered, and they want to know where to vote. So voter education is a very important component of this. And voter protection is because there is a rampant uh, movement across the country to suppress the vote. Mm. It's an active campaign. It's uh, been going on for many years. Uh, The alt-right, the far-right have been animating this effort. Thirty states have have sought to pass voter suppression, uh, voter ID, cut back on early voting, all across the board, exact match requirements. Uh, we're we're suggesting to people do not be deterred, get out and vote.
2: So so you mentioned these voter suppression tactics, because quite a few of them uh, are making the news. Certainly Georgia is one of the yes, more prominent of examples. Uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, who is running for governor against the sitting Secretary of State, uh, in Georgia Brian Kemp and uh, there's been a purging of majority African American voters uh, from the rolls now there's also uh, in North Dakota controversy around um you Native know what Native Americans because the Supreme Court essentially sided with a, or ruled that they have to have postal addresses that are more specific which they t- with street names they don't typically have that i think in Texas it's, there's an effort to suppress millennial m- younger voters so, so what are you seeing? How, 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 has, big of a, yeah, how big of a sup- concern is Supreme it? The
5: Supreme Court has been part of the voter suppression machine. Mm. Their decision in Shelby, their decision to green light uh, voter purges. Uh, it's not something I would expect the Supreme Court, which should protect our individual rights and liberties, uh, to do. So one of the things we're doing, certainly we have in the civil rights communities uh, uh, lawyer allies, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the American Civil Liberties Union, all of them uh, have armies of lawyers who, where possible and where needed, are taking legal action to try to shut down these purges and shut down these activations. So people, however, have to be vigilant and people cannot be deterred. We're saying to people go in. If you have to cast a provisional ballot, cast a provisional ballot. We cannot allow this voter purge effort to intimidate, frustrate, or stop people from voting. And we're going to be in a fight uh, for many, many months and years against these voter suppression efforts until Congress passes a new Voting Rights Act, an mm. updated Voting Rights Act to fix the hole blown into the act by the Supreme Court in the Shelby decision in 2013.
2: Yes, because it, these are elections that could ultimately come down to just A few thousand votes, right? Close
5: elections. uh, We've seen close elections before. There's the legendary Gore v. Bush. The presidential election in 19, I mean in 2016, rode on uh, a handful of votes cast in three states. People have to recognize every single vote counts. The absentee votes count. The last minute people who stay in line up until eight uh, o'clock and hang in there until they can vote. We have got to encourage people to vote. What I see... Is an energized, electric. What I see in the African American community is great interest in voting, and I also see uh, in the African American community this opportunity for some historic pickups. You've got Stacey Abrams running in Georgia, you've got Andrew Gillum running in Florida, Mm -hmm. both for governor, both
2: Ben uh, Jealous as well, Ben Jealous in
5: uh, in Maryland, and you've also got Mike Espy running for the United States Senate down in Mississippi, a race that's not gotten as much national attention. Mm. These would be historic victories. Uh, no doubt, and so you also have uh, African Americans running for Congress in districts that are majority white. Uh, uh, Antonio Delgado in New York, uh, the woman who won the primary can't think of her name uh, in uh, in Connecticut. Iana Presley in mm. Boston. You've got uh, a new generation of uh, candidates, uh, and you've got certainly a new generation of African American candidates. Uh, who are demonstrating uh, great prowess, uh, great ability to compete, great ability to navigate, and what I want to mention, broad appeal, Mm. appealing to broad segments of voters, and that's why there's a lot of excitement out there in this election.
0: Some
2: of these candidates you mentioned uh, have been on the receiving end of attacks that are very much focused on race. Andrew Gillum just uh, participated in a, a debate In the Florida governor's race with uh, his his Republican opponent, Ron DeSantis, uh, who right after Andrew Gillum won the primary the following day, uh, this was DeSantis who made the statement that we don't want to monkey this up. Um, He didn't apologize. He refused to apologize. He only said that he had not, you know, he wasn't referring to race, even though. Uh, the phrase itself is obviously loaded. It's clear he was. It, uh, you know, there, you mentioned— Dog whistle politics. A bol- you mentioned Delgado, who Republicans are running ads, suggesting he's a—dubbing you know, fr- fr- him as a rapper, trying to it seems scare people. Can you talk a little bit just about so the way that this, the politics yeah, of fear and race is, have played out?
5: This is nothing new. Mm. This is part and parcel. I, of course, am from New Orleans— I was uh, elected there both to the state Senate and mayor, ran multiple campaigns for others for many years, and you saw appeals to race subtle as well as overt were part and parcel of Southern politics mm-hmm. for years, from the 1950s continuing through. This has now become uh, beyond the South, if you will, but let me tell you what it is. When people do that, they're indicating desperation mm-hmm. when people do that they're indicating they have no substantive issue to run on that all they want to do is uh, stoke the, flam- the the flames of fear mm. in voters and I think that both Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams have been very direct I think it's got to be counteracted mm. immediately it has to be called out uh, and reasonable people will understand uh, that that has no place in American politics but it's it's what losers do. It's what people who feel uh, they can't uh appeal to voters based on any substance, they use race, they use division, they use demagoguery to try to stoke fears in the electorate and get people to vote based on that. Do you know it.
1: I, I, w- I want to play a clip really quickly because you know uh, this is something that happens a lot, right, mm-hmm. especially with Republicans. They're running for office and then they end up taking contributions and donations and support from people who are outwardly and and definitively racist. And Andrew Gillum, mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. this was such a good clip from the debate that he had with Ron DeSantis earlier this week where he says, I'm not calling him racist.
3: My grandmother used to say a hit dog will holler uh, and it hollered uh, through this room. Mr. DeSantis has spoken. Uh, First of all, he's got neo-Nazis helping him out in the state. Uh, He has spoken at racist conferences. He's accepted a contribution and would not return it from someone who referred to the former president of the United States as a Muslim N-I-G-G-E-R. When asked to return that money, he said no. He's using that money to now fund negative ads. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. That is an amazing line.
5: That's a great line. It's, and it's a great it, line. It's accurate. He's, he's been endorsed mm. by racist elements. Look, this, Ron DeSantis, yes. Look, almost 30 years ago in Louisiana, David Duke, mm. the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, won a, a seat in the runoff for governor of Louisiana. He ended up uh, only getting 40, 41, 42 percent of the vote, but carried almost a majority of the white vote in Louisiana. These strands of race, these appeals to race are nothing new. I think Ron Gil, uh, uh, Andrew Gillum has done the right thing by calling it out. Mm-hmm. You've got to call it out. No more can we operate in a world where we allow hatred to be tacitly ignored. We've got to call it out, and we've got to appeal to the better instincts in people to say we don't want that as a part of our politics. We don't want that as a part of our discourse, and we don't want people who wink and nod to hate groups in America uh, serving in public office.
2: And there's obviously an authenticity, too, if it, if the person who is responding is a person of color themselves, someone like Andrew Gillum or Stacey Abrams. Can you talk a little bit about the diversity of the field in 2018? Because there's been a record number of uh, candidates of color, a uh, record number of Muslims, a record number of women. Uh, it's, it's certainly, it's, it certainly seems to be the case that increasingly the electorate does want um, ele- officials who more are more representative yeah, of the diversity in this country. It's
5: long overdue. It's long overdue the idea uh, that uh, people who are black, Latino, Asian, uh, Muslim, gay, Native American can serve in public office, can do it competently, can do it uh, in a fashion uh, where they represent the interest of all people. I think this election it may be a reckoning and maybe uh, may prove that point uh, I believe that uh, it also serves to encourage more people to participate in politics mm-hmm. and, and participate in the elections process and run for office when they see themselves when they see others what excites me is the number of young people running for office I mean I ran For office the first time I was 25 years old I ran for Democratic delegate in 1984 pledged to Jesse Jackson Uh, I got elected to the Louisiana Senate I was 32 I got elected mayor I was 35 Uh, at the beginning of my career I met at every single turn arguments that I was too I was too young Mm. I was too young to compete I was too young to serve I beat it back every single time which is why I've got such a passion when I see young people, intelligent young people, assertive young people, young people that have hope and vision, running for office and offering themselves to serve, and it's only a positive thing, uh, and uh, it reflects the future of America, which is a diverse America. It's a gumbo America. Mm. It's a mosaic. You know, it's a it's a tapestry, and that is what our elected officials should look like. The nation.
2: Then. You've been all across the country, and we're in the home stretch now. And what are you finding to be the issues that uh, voters are truly prioritizing as they head to the polls?
5: I think that the polling and the political pundits, they, they, the public opinion polls say people are most concerned about health care, and it may run the highest. I think people are concerned about the direction of the country. I think that people are concerned about sending. A message. I think people want to send a message that hate speech, uh, if you will, coarse division, personal attacks on people, not the kind of politics they endorse. This is a a larger, if you will, referendum on the future of the country. Inside of it, there's the issues of health care, there's the issues of reproductive rights, there's the issue of civil rights and the judiciary, there's the issues of income inequality. That are inside of this debate, inside of this discussion, but I think it's about a bigger issue. I think it's about a a, a a gut check on what kind of country we want to have.
2: You know, we were just talking about how the politics of division and and stoking fears around race, around immigration, it's nothing new. It dates back, you know, throughout the course of this country's history. But in what ways has this president really, in emboldened? people to run these campaigns that are very much rooted in the politics of fear.
5: He sought to normalize it, and he sought to say it's okay because being that way is being real and it's being politically incorrect. Mm. He's normalized it. But I want to remind people that the 2000, and this is a larger conversation for maybe another day, uh, the president did not win a majority of the popular vote. He's never polled higher than 41%, 42% in the public opinion polls. Two out of the last three presidents of the United States, Donald Trump and George W. Bush were elected without receiving a majority of the popular vote. They were elected through this quirky, outdated, antiquated electoral college system. We gotta get rid of that because what we're doing is, we are, it's a perversion to democracy when you can win an election in a democratic country and not get a majority of the vote. The reason why I say that is because I think that gerrymandering and the system, the structure of the system, is one of the reasons why we have some of the elected officials we have today.
2: And so, you know, as you said, this is a, a president who has tr- is is historically unpopular. Um, he's also you know, elevated a lot of the voices that were. More, more quiet mm-hmm. that kept them like, these uh, opinions to themselves. It, it, sometimes there's a question as to whether we're fixated on this narrative that this is going to be a referendum on the president, that these midterms will be. But is are you, in fact, hearing well, that, in, that, that that's what's motivating voters?
5: I think that on an overall basis it's a motivating factor because mm-hmm. it, it reflects the information that they've been uh, a witness to for now almost two years. Now, inside of that, in individual races, Uh, voters are going to make, particularly in competitive races, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're going to make a choice between candidate A, candidate B, and the positions that they hold. But I think there's something else larger going on. This is a different kind of midterm. It feels like a different kind of midterm. I was in Philadelphia last week uh, visiting uh, uh, an historic church and talking to them about getting out the vote, and they shared with me that they had their own phone bank that they had organized Mm. completely on their own. Uh, it's not tied to any candidate. It's not tied to any party. It's not tied to any organization. What I reason why I illustrate that is that you see that in this cycle. You have a lot of people doing things independent on their own because of their concern about the direction of the country. They're not waiting for a political party, a political candidate, an organization to say, come on, come participate, let's get out the vote. And I've not witnessed that in a midterm. I've seen it in presidential cycles, mm. but not in a midterm.
2: So you feel like there is this uh, unusual enthusiasm. Uh, are there any particular areas that you're more focused on? Where are a lot of your efforts dedicated? So there's a
5: lot of energy in places like Georgia and mm-hmm. places like uh, uh, Florida and places like Texas where they're high profile, highly competitive races. Uh, since we're using uh, social media, we're touching people all over the country, but we have focused efforts in a number of places. So, for example, this weekend, uh, the, the, the uh, Urban League team, the team of the National Urban League and the Atlanta Urban League, will be in Georgia, will be uh, participating in. There's a big homecoming for Morehouse College, yeah. and so there are going to be tens of thousands of young people, <clears throat> and we'll be reminding uh, them to vote. We will be sharing with them our hotline. Places to to report uh, voter uh, voter irregularities as a part of voter protection campaign. So we got you know we have efforts underway in a number of places, but we're not out there alone. Mm. I mean there are many civic, civil rights professional associations. But what I want to remind people is, this election is a horse race, and now it's coming into the home stretch, and I think the horses are neck and neck. So. This can't be, I saw the poll and the election's over, so I don't need to vote. This has got to be every vote until the bell sounds has to be counted, has to be in. We don't want people to sleep. We don't Mm -hmm. want them to rest. We want them to work. We want them to vote. We want them to make sure the people in their homes vote, uh, people in their social networks vote. I've been challenging people to send out at least one social media message a day to their network to remind them to get out and vote.
2: Right. Everyone, get out and vote. Ask your friends if they're voting. Enough is enough. And uh, thank you so much, Mark Marilla, National me. Urban League President and CEO. It was wonderful Always having you good to be with this you. morning. Thank you. Good we'll morning. be back after a short break. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show.
5: This is The Bill Press Show.
2: Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here. Closing out what has been another uh, riveting and exhausting morning because there's just a lot to keep up with in Trump's Washington. And here to break down, uh, even more for us is Hannah Trudeau, who is a staff correspondent at National uh, Journal Hotline. And, uh, Hannah, thank you for, for being with us. And again, <laughs> welcome again. back. Thanks again. for having me. back. <laughs> very, very. Uh, thank you for accommodating us. <laughs> of um, course, we're moving around this schedule, uh, and uh, you know, like I said, things are a little unpredictable in Trump's Washington. So totally. We just roll with the punches. Totally. Um, but uh, you know, and you're you're here to talk 2020, which uh, you know people often say already. But frankly. As is the case, uh, you know, the, the race for the next um, presidential election really just begins the day after the preceding presidential election. Yes, um, that's a good and, way of putting it. And I, the way I kind of uh, frame this, to you, um, was who is not running uh, for president on the Democratic side? Because it just seems like it's going to be such a massive field.
4: Yeah, I think um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Hillary Clinton is not running.
2: <laughs> I know that's some kind people, of a controversial thing. Some people thing. Who still think somehow that maybe she is. Yeah,
4: yeah. No. Some people think that. Um, you know, you never know. I guess never say never. But there's going to be a lot of people running. Um, and I think, you know, Upwards, I would say, of two dozen, maybe, mm. maybe, almost three dozen, um, and you know that doesn't mean that they're going to be in the race for the long haul, but they can certainly toss their names in and see how far they get. Now,
2: is there a clear front runner? Uh, I mean, we obviously learned that front runners this this early um, out don't necessarily matter. Otherwise, we would have had Republican nominee Jeb Bush. Right. Um, right. But is there someone who? Uh, party operatives believe is the clear uh, path winner here?
4: I think um, it's interesting because I've been covering this for almost two years now, which is crazy enough. Um, but the more I've talked to people in the party in different states and at the national level, um, I think it's becoming more and more clear that there isn't a nat- natural uh, frontrunner the way that Hillary was in 2016. Um, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of big name Democrats who are going to run. I think, you know, if anything, it's like the most, you know, sort of robust field that Democrats have seen in quite a long time um, are expected to be. But um, it's interesting because there's not, you know, one person that I can think of that I I could
2: say, you know, that's going to be the top Mm -hmm. 2020 Dem. What happens if former vice president Joe Biden does run? Is it your sense that he is? I mean, everyone seems to think he is. Everyone is thinks he just he is. soaking uh or is he you know, speculation and just loving the publicity, or is he actually making moves?
4: So he a little bit of both. He's making moves. Um he's definitely traveled the country this entire uh, midterm season and and well before that. Um that being said, he doesn't really need to do that because everybody knows who he is. So a lot of that prep work is like building the name recognition and stuff mm-hmm. like that but everybody knows who Biden is um so he's made some moves in that sense he's kind of done you know the the um, handshaking and the things that the people want to see him on the trail he's made some cable news appearances stuff like that um but you know he's he's also sort of, not pulled the trigger in the past, so we've seen him prepare for a run and then sort of back away. And then he's also run unsuccessfully two other times. Mm-hmm. So if he does run, you know,
2: who knows if he's gonna do well. Um, but it looks like he might, yeah. He certainly comes out ahead hadn't a lot of pulling, but now some of that, as you know, um, has to do with the built in name ID, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, there is we all know who Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, right. and Kirsten Gillibrand are, but there's a lot of people across the country. Uh, for whom those are not household names. Um, But do Democrats feel, I mean, I've I've been interested in this, that they need to have fresh blood on the ballot. Do they feel like someone who is such a prominent figure in the party Mm -hmm. would lend itself, uh, being the nominee, would lend itself to a very familiar narrative, in fact, what Hillary Clinton faced, that this is the establishment, that this is someone who just inherited the ticket.
4: Yeah, I think um, there are definitely some people who want that familiar face like um, like Biden or even somebody like Bernie um, who they saw compete against Hillary and you know I think he still does have support among his core group of, of people who liked him um, that being said I've talked to so many people in a lot of the battlegrounds over the past you know year or so and they often say we want somebody new we want to see who's out there there's going to be so many people like we're excited just to see not necessarily just the big Nate not, not even just Kamala Harris or Cory Booker but like Tim Ryan or you know Pete Buttigieg who's the mayor of South Bend Indiana Mm -hmm. you know they I think and um, especially like in New Hampshire and Iowa people talk about this a lot they love to see like new fresh faces and they they sort of hold their um, role in the nominating process in really high regard um, for better or worse but um,
2: I think yeah I think that's the gist in a lot of those early states. Another name who's who's out there or that's out there is michael avenatti yes we have talked about michael avenatti Holy yes
1: cow. he has not had a great 24 hours <laughs>
2: yeah there's a profile um, <laughs> of him molly ball uh has written uh, for time yeah and, and now you know he's just, not that any of you are uh, unversed in avenatti I, I would certainly wonder if you've been living under a rock if you are <laughs> unversed or unfamiliar with him is, of course, the now celebrity lawyer who yes. represented Stormy Daniels, um, no, Stephanie Clifford, her being her real name, the adult film actress who uh, has challenged uh, President Trump for a non disclosure agreement uh, that she says she was essentially forced into hush right. money that was paid to her uh, for having to not uh, to keep under wraps her, an alleged affair with. Uh, The president, you know, many years ago. Um, And so that was how Abinadi sort of rose to prominence. This fire dog who's frankly, you know, very much uh, embraced this Trumpian tone who likes to punch back at the president on his own turf. Is he being taken seriously, (laughs) though, as he as he openly suggests that he would like to run in 2020? He
4: definitely has. And um, I talked to him on the phone not too long ago Admittedly, before a lot of this stuff recently happened, but it, this was probably a month ago or so. And um, one of the interesting things he told me was that he's been approached and encouraged by a lot of super delegates to run, <laughs> um, which is kind of like a weird tidbit. Um, but you know, I think a lot of super delegates are going to be a little more obsolete in 2020 <laughs> anyway. So I, I would take that with a grain of salt. Um, but he did tell me that at the time. Um, I think he's had a bad couple of days. You know, he's had a lot of of stuff. Right. happen. Talk to us a little
2: bit about what what his week has looked like. Um. Now, the one thing that's happened is that Chuck Grassley, the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, he has referred Michael Avenatti and Julie Swetnick, uh, who was the third Brett Kavanaugh accuser, um. To, for criminal charges right. for issuing false statements to the committee, uh, Julie Swetnick did not uh, personally accuse Brett Kavanaugh of sexual sexual misconduct against her, but she was the one who said that she had witnessed Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and his friends mm-hmm. uh, drug women at parties back when they were teenagers and used the phrase "gang rape" to describe uh, the activities that or that frankly the the actions that they allegedly committed. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Kavanaugh denied that, and this was one of the more Um, sensational claims that was made. Yeah. Um, You know, that's, of course, political because Grassley referred them for criminal charges and not others. Um, You know, if Kavanaugh also denied the accusations by Christine Blasey Ford and Mm -hmm. Deborah Ramirez, the other two women, one can make the argument that Republicans who bought those denials... Um, believe that those women also lied right Um, right uh, but that's a that's sort of a a segue what else has happened with michael yeah
4: i think um it's all sort of it's good context to keep in mind with him because there's a lot of like moving parts with his um persona as a political figure recently and um i think one thing that i took away from that molly ball interview which was interesting was um that he said you know was quoted saying that he thinks a white male should be sort of the person to take on Trump in 2020. Obviously he is a white male. um, So that was probably a little bit of a plug for himself. Um, And there's a weird thing
1: like where he said that he didn't say that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, yeah. And so it's kind of, he said he didn't
1: say it. They're sticking by their story.
4: Yeah. They're sticking by their story. I think as they should, it's kind of one of those things where he is Trumpian in a certain sense of like hitting back against any sort of media criticism. And I've gotten into my uh, Twitter sort of spat with him myself. So like, you know, so not just me, you know, it's a lot of reporters kind of spar with him on Twitter. It with sounds things. so
2: familiar. <laughs>
4: and so, yeah, and so it's like, you know, some people like that he's a fighter and I've seen this. Um, some people, you know, kind of just regular people in the country have said, like, we need somebody like him to take on Trump, like fight fire with fire type of thing. But, um, you know, I think denying saying something that was clearly on
2: you know, I was gonna ask if it's our, on tape. I mean, I, not, that, yeah, not that I need to wade into the veracity of the story. Yeah, well, and the
4: reporters always,
2: you know, remind that's her, the thing. Always it's tape kind of your conversations. Like they're, yeah,
4: they're, this is a long profile piece. Like I would assume it's been taped. Um, yeah. I don't know that for a fact, but um, but I think it just kind of speaks to the point of he's he kind of has this tendency to like fight back on any yeah. type of criticism um, and said he was taken out of context and. Um, you know
1: but you know like we, when you talk about that he's he is sort of fighting fire with fire he's fighting Trump with trumpism that's the trumpiest thing you could possibly yeah, do it is. it's everything he goes right up short to calling it fake news he also
2: right, right he says the quiet part out loud yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Democrats <laughs> who uh do believe the argument and buy into the argument and this is not this is not my argument this is there's some democrat yeah. strategists who would say yeah. that he's not wrong yeah, yeah. That they're worried that like someone like kamala harris or Cory booker would be the perfect foil for yes. the president given that you know race has been such an in, a, you know integral uh, part of you know the way that the president has run his campaigns sure. uh, he's, he's been campaigning since he also took office effectively um a lot on this message of you know this very like familiar anti-immigrant platform mm-hmm. and just you know really divisive racial politics, um, but but Avenatti, you know, it's like something that you don't really say, and he said, sure,
4: it. yeah, of course, and I think I think for somebody like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, it's almost. Um He takes away some of the spotlight from, you know, they've had some other big political moves happening in the past couple of weeks. And like, I don't know if people remember that, you know, Corey and Kamala both went to Iowa and like made sort of overt 2020 move. You know, like it's kind of um, everyone's focused on what Michael Avenatti is saying on Twitter, where there are sort of other Candidates who have been or potential candidates who have been making some serious moves like Biden, you know, other yeah. people. Um, and so it's
2: kind of like interesting to see what people are going to focus on. And i much like Trump uh, has no problem getting on television. Exactly. Uh, he's given the platform yeah. um, because he's someone who is uh, and has made himself, uh, you know, to be such a character. And and uh, I, I I think it's interesting that his approach is very much this fight fire with fire, um, Mm. you know, mentality because... It's gone are the days when former first lady Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. And everyone
4: has their <laughs> spin off on that. Now, Eric Holder has his. Wait, did he his, say something? We kick them? Yeah. Low, we kick <laughs> yeah. Them. yeah. And, you know, um, and he. so people have sort of had their like and he's rumored to be considering a run. You know, right. so people are sort of taking their own spin on that. And I think that that also isn't necessarily right. helpful. And, they're, you know, I don't think he meant it literally, right, obviously. Right. And but it's kind of like, you know, tem- Democrats often talk about we don't. We don't want to go back to 2016. We want to put the past in the past. And that was something that Michelle Obama said right after the election. So I'm always kind of wondering about why, like, these phrases kind of get repurposed, even if they're, you know, good in their moment. You know, why are Democrats sort of like relying on a 2016-esque
2: context? context, It's also, you know, frankly, something that I think, um, you know, only applies to Trump, though, that you can play dirty. Or so far, it's... Insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, the rules or lack thereof uh, for this president, you know, that's sort of unparalleled. And mm. I, I think that a lot... There's, there's certainly this mis- this risk Democrats are taking by thinking that maybe they can... You know, run a Trumpian yeah, campaign. Now, obviously, yeah. on the issues and on the rhetoric, it wouldn't be the same because they have dramatically different ways of looking at the issues in this country. And um, but but just in terms of the fight fire with fire approach, yes. we, as Marco Rubio learned the hard right, way, right. only Trump gets to say these. Yeah, things, that's right. That's uh, unless Michael Avenatti proves a soul. Uh, wrong. But who else? I mean, you've mentioned Kamal Harris, Cory Booker, Joe Biden. Who else are you watching? And is there is there someone that we're not watching? Uh, is there someone like Trump who oh, potentially wow. is going to come out of the woodwork and actually do <laughs> do it? And, we, you know, I no one. Everyone's been so focused on, you know, the candidates whose names get thrown around in Washington. Yeah,
4: I think, um you know, one one group of people that I think are kind of um don't have so much attention paid to are the mayors. Um, And there's, you know, been a little bit of increased interest in, in, you know, hey, maybe a mayor can run for president if Trump can run, you know, that type of thing. Um, So I would say somebody like Eric Garcetti, uh, the Los Angeles mayor. Um, I
2: mentioned Pete Buttigieg just because, you know, he's kind of somebody who I don't think most people have heard of. Right. And Um, he ran for the chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee. um, And so some people May, I mean, yeah very few people obviously yeah so if you a, followed that people, race closely people <laughs> to this show very much right. paid attention and bill even moderated one of their debates but but yes yeah ar- so the he's country, somebody who's um know. he's kind of introducing himself to people right now um
4: I actually got my hands on a, a donor letter that he sent to somebody that was like leaked to me that said you know thank you for your encouragement i've i've been seeing oh. many encouraging signs as I travel so that was kind of like I i took interest in that only because I thought like oh does he mean encouraging signs for like his own potential bid or what you know right. what was that all what about what does it mean um and so uh, yeah and then the other mayor that I would think of um is Mitch Landrieu or former mayor of New Orleans okay um, he just ended his term and he's more of a Biden centrist type of
2: figure um so I you know I don't know if if that will be what's and he had a big uh moment but again if you're not someone who tunes into politics yeah you may not be familiar with Um, And this was around the whole debate over removing Confederate uh, statues um, where he addressed the history of the Civil War. And and that was a moment, I think, that people sort of sat up and took notice. Yeah, I think
4: so. And, um, you know, people in his circle and people even in the South in general, I think they they kind of put him in the camp of he has this sort of like. Bill Clinton-esque quality when he speaks that Mm -hmm. he's able to, he's, you know, a white Southern man, but he's able to sort of address broad um, groups of people. And so I think that that's, potentially how he might try and frame his bid. But he's also come out and say and said, like, you know, I am a more centrist Democrat. He's not trying to move leftward as like most people are. And we're seeing like more and more people who are prominent, considered prominent frontrunners or would be front runners um, move leftward. He's kind of staking his ground in the middle and saying, like, this is, you know, I think potentially where I'm going to be if I run type of thing. Um, so he's,
2: he's on my, he's on my radar. And do Democrats at the national level, I mean, there's the the DNC, obviously, but there are other groups and, and just those who've worked, let's say, for example, for previous uh, candidates, many of whom, frankly, are working for now potential candidates. Um, but, but do they have a a sense or of, you know, who they think they need? I mean, is there any, like, is there any emerging consensus around, Mm. you know, at least, uh, you know, among the kind of. Party operatives around who they should, yeah. That's a
4: good question. I think um, I think we've seen a lot of former Hillary staffers go to some potential candidates, Mm -hmm. like kind of like what you're alluding to. Um, a lot of Kamala Harris's team has a lot of former Hillary people. Some people on on Cory Booker's team. Um, so I think that we're just starting to see the formation of like where I know Bernie Sanders. Um former team has gone to different different people Um, so uh, you know I wouldn't say that there's like one group of operatives who have like chosen their person yet but I think um, it's interesting a lot of this stuff is going to happen at the state you know Mm. state level so they're going to start like choosing their local operatives at in like Iowa or New Hampshire wherever Nevada wherever South Carolina um, right after the midterms. And I think that it's gonna be a mad dash to see like who can get the good people that know about like Des Moines or, you know, mm. Manchester or whatever who are on the ground. And like perhaps they worked for Hillary or they worked for Bernie or, you know, whoever they think might be the um, the way to go. I just want
1: to break in here really quick because now we're talking about 2020 and one of the names that we hear a lot around 2020 is Cory Booker. Uh, Pete Williams from NBC is reporting that a suspicious package was addressed to Cory Booker oh, wow. and it has been intercepted in South Florida. This was just mm-hmm. a couple of moments ago. So yet another Suspicious package. We don't know what the contents are as right. of now. We'll find out more as the day goes on, of course. Uh, but uh, again, this is still happening.
2: It's ongoing, and uh, as we as we, um, we were talking about earlier, you know, this began on Wednesday. But mm. uh, yesterday, that was when the suspicious package uh, packages addressed to you know, former Vice President Joe Biden mm-hmm. to Robert De Niro. Those were actually. Um, part of uh, those that revelation, and so it didn't all occur on the same day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, we were talking a bit about, you know, the Democratic Party at a national level, and in uh, 2016, of course, there was a much more um, closely contested primary than uh, mm-hmm. thought and mm-hmm. a bitterly contested primary, too, yeah. where it got very ugly, yeah. ugly by Democratic standards. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. you say that and then you remember what happened on yeah. the Republican side. Yeah. And, you know... The things that Trump said about his opponents and their wives and yeah. their family members, yeah. um, but but you know, just by standards of Democrats, obviously between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, the reason that that is uh, relevant is more so because of the way in which it um, laid bare the the the, di- the division within the party on what their platform should mm-hmm. be, uh, mostly uh economic platform and and how progressive they are willing to go. Yeah. Uh a lot of these potential contenders you've talked about have been running on uh, Medicare for all, the mm-hmm. the Bernie Sanders uh healthcare proposal, more clearly embracing single payer. So it seems like at least on the issues a lot of it is very clearly defined or yes. much more clearly defined. But are those wounds healed? Um <laughs> that's what I'm more curious about. Well, I think um, <laughs>
4: We mentioned we've been mentioning Bernie Sanders. I think we would be remiss not to mention Elizabeth Warren um, in all of this kind of 2020 talk yeah. because she's also um, she has her differences from Bernie in, in some ways, but she's ideologically quite aligned with him. And so, like you're saying, the party has clearly moved in that direction and so is it up to Bernie to claim the credit is it you know Elizabeth Warren who's going to claim the credit Um, is nobody going to claim the credit you know so it's kind of it's kind of that that question right now Um, but I think there are some um, tensions between sort of like how left people want to go. I think one example of that we saw in the New York um, governor's race between Cuomo and uh, Andrew Cuomo and um, Hillary Hillary Clinton, Cynthia Nixon. Um, and so Cynthia Nixon kind of made Cuomo go more left on things like marijuana legislation than he would necessarily have wanted to. And like a lot of people were saying that at the time. And so he, I mean, I don't know if he's going to run in 2020. He's kind of a rumored person, um, but that's an example of like pushing the platform leftward in a way that makes somebody who is more centrist like him, maybe Biden, maybe Mitch Landrieu, it makes them sort of reevaluate what they might want to do in order to win type of thing. Um, So, you know, and then from the more left leaning candidate side, like Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren, um, it's interesting with them, they might end up Splitting some of the vote, if you know, they might mm-hmm. sort of divide that vote and then it might end up going to somebody else in the process. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of like speculation, obviously. Right.
2: And but El- Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, made waves. It just the news cycle is so relentless that I, I forgot that this was literally a week ago, but yeah. uh, about you know, thereabouts, but yeah, she, she made uh waves because she released this video. Which many people saw as an entree yeah, toward a presidential yeah. run, where she talked about her family story. It wasn't just about this one uh, issue, but yeah. you know, t- the president has attacked repeatedly. Warren for having said that she has Native American heritage. Right. Um, She's not claimed, and this is because it's one of the misconceptions. She's not claimed. Um, to belong to a tribe, right. um, and, and always been clear that, that it is tribes who determine, yes. uh, affiliation, but, but she has said that, you know, f- through family folklore, right. um, you know, she, she has native American roots and, and she also did on an application, um, identify herself as, 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 uh, as part of native American, mm-hmm. um, background. So, so. So she addresses that in the video and, yeah, and has yeah. a DNA, you know, she's the results of a DNA test that were revealed showing that she does indeed have this fraction of uh, heritage. <laughs> you know, is this how so so what's the response been like to that? And what were Democrats uh saying about it? Because, you know, the results, there were also questions about the timing of it yeah,
4: all. It, yeah. So there are a lot of layers to it. Um I thought it was a very well choreographed uh, video. It To me, it looked like her presidential announcement video. Like I was waiting for the end to say, like, I'm Elizabeth Warren and I'm <laughs> running for, you know, I was like, is she going to say it in the video? I was yeah. really like waiting for that. But, um, you know, I mean, it was a well choreographed it was a well thought out plan in terms of how it, like her team kept it under wraps nobody knew it was coming like it's been you know they've been clear about that I've talked to them about that they've said like nobody knew this was coming out um and so and they and truly I mean they did we didn't as you know a lot of reporters had no idea any of this was coming out but it kind of was the last like you said it was the last step to like a lot of other things that she's been doing to prepare to run so to me it was kind of like she was putting out the issue as a way to put it past her before she announces a bid and I think that that's kind of Um, built up as the consensus of, like, why she did it. Um, In terms of how it was received, I think that there were a lot of different reactions to it. I think, like, um, in terms of the timing, it was kind of like, I think it was Obama's former um, campaign manager who said something like... um, You know, why are you doing this right before the midterms? Like, we need to, you know, get our stuff together type of thing. Like, this is a distraction. Democrats
1: just can't keep their eye on the ball. That's Yeah, something.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) That's what it was. Um, And, you know, I mean, there's something to that, I think. I think that's a fair enough statement. I think it's fair enough, you know, also for her team to get it out there when they want to get it out there. I mean, they don't have to... Necessarily follow the midterms as their like guiding guide, you know. Right. Yeah, and she's up herself this year, and so maybe they thought, you know, she's up for the set, you know, re-election, and we're going to do this while she's up for re-election type of thing. So it's it's hard um, to say, but I think. In the DC sort of media world, yeah. it was considered like, oh my gosh, this is really bad for her right. um, rollout. But I, I think it's early. Yeah, you know? I mean and it's a long wait ahead until 2020.
2: I think her team said uh, that she had, you know, submit herself for the testing in August and then got the results like a week before the video or something. Or something in, in, the, research, yeah, in the yeah, yeah, time frame. Well, in the relative time frame, and maybe they just know too well that this is not something you can keep under wraps is surprising they did for as long as they did maybe it'd be leaked so they'd rather just yeah you know, exactly. kind of yeah. do it themselves and yeah. control the narrative a bit um and put the issue to rest seemingly although the president yeah. uh, is certainly not one who to to change his tone and he has not he continued to he's continued to refer to her as pocahontas which obviously a lot of people <laughs> see as uh, derogatory yeah well, because it quite clearly is yeah um, and it's, 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 it's i mean it's not really being put to rest right i feel like this is something that is gonna if she runs it's still gonna come up
4: yeah and i think so i think in terms of like how it was perceived i think the biggest takeaway like the most accurate sort of way to describe it is it kind of backfired like whether they meant you know whether they saw that coming whether they were surprised like it backfired in the sense of if she's gonna run ultimately she would like try to take on Trump, you know, as the nominee, she tried to win the primary and then she would try to ultimately take on Trump. So like it kind of flopped in in that sense that it kind of fueled, you know, Republicans more to attack her and in a way mm. that it was they always have. And Trump always has. But it wasn't, you know, in the spotlight. And she kind of thrust that into the spotlight. Right. And so I think if anything, it was like a clumsy sort of rollout um, and added a little bit more fuel to the fire. But I mean, again, like I I don't think it changed a lot of people's minds about her one way or the other on the Republican side or the Democratic side. I right. think it was kind of like people liked her. They still like her. People hate her. They still hate her.
2: Right. Um, I mean, this is sort of like some of the issues Hillary Clinton contended with where uh, how people see this Is already baked in. Right. And so I don't think, even though Elizabeth Warren had come up with this video, I don't think it's going to change minds. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it it provides context to all those voters who aren't familiar with her. Sure. um, Sure. Yeah, and it lets her her her, take control of the
4: narrative and lets her show her family Mm -hmm. and say, like, these are my brothers and these are my, you know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, that's.
2: (laughs) I mean, so, so, you know, obviously, it's like there's there's so many people um, who are running, but is there not concern that because of. Trump's popularity um, mm-hmm. among Republicans and, and uh, just how unified they are behind him. Mm-hmm. And frankly, his approval ratings have been also risen among the broader public. Now, they're still underwater, but yeah. higher than they have been um, in, you know, the nearly two years since he's yeah. been in office yeah. that having so many candidates is and this what would then be a very uh, bitterly contested primary mm-hmm. is actually going to help him.
4: Yeah, that's I think that's one of those like wait and see type of things, because I think um, if it is clear in the first like six or eight months of the cycle, who's going to be the front runner, then I think that might not necessarily help them in that same way. It might be a true like you know, match in that sense. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think if there's all sorts of people running for like many, many months on end and nobody really drops out and I mean, that could just be really chaotic. I'm not sure how it would um, affect the Republicans, but it would definitely be fodder for them to say, like, look at all these people running. Like they, they, they can't no decide. On, right. right. They have no message. They have no clear leader. Like, so I can see that happening, you know,
2: do they think it'd be a refer? I mean, it's obviously going to be a referendum on, The president any president who seeks re-election as an incumbent yeah Um, but do they do they worry also that if it's all anti-trump then that's not enough or are they running on something else really well
4: um, I think it depends so I talk to people a lot about this I think some Democrats feel that they have to be extreme so Elizabeth Warren for example she very much goes toe-to-toe with him and attacks him Kind of like Michael Avenatti, although I don't—I hate to make that comparison—but she does go very sort of like one for one with him, um, yep. engages with him on Twitter, goes back and forth with him, and has for you know quite a long time for many years now. Um, whereas somebody like I was—I'm reporting a story now where um, Cory Booker is the. C- c- you know somebody who keeps being brought up in the sense where he sort of stays away from a lot of Trump rhetoric at his like right. his events or his rallies, and he's more focused on like positive messaging as a way to combat Trump in like mm-hmm. the other sense. So I think it depends. It, like it's it's unclear whose message is going to like resonate more with people because I think there is a strong desire among some people for that anti-Trump and tom steyer is another mm-hmm. person who he's an out he's a sort of outsider right. um but he's also somebody who's like very much anti-trump right. and some people like that about him but um some people also don't want to hear about trump right. and they want like democrats to be sort of their safe space right. where it's a like, more
2: a more unifying message uh yeah, something that's more of a something platform. that's
4: not him
2: right absolutely know? well we're, plenty of time to keep dissecting <laughs> this thank you so much hannah trudeau and yes. thank you everyone for he's tuning the in to thank the show.